listening to Texas Slim's Vision, where we discuss food intelligence, the Texas Beef Initiative, and how to design an international lifestyle starting right here, right now. You don't want to miss this. And now, here's your host, Texas Slim. Hey guys, this is Texas Slim from Texas Slim's Vision. Uh, we are recording tonight. I have Elsie Hoddle. Uh, Mr. The Blue Collar Pleb, and we've uh, met once before. We did a podcast earlier on his channel, his podcast. And after I got Texas Slim's vision running, I wanted to reach out to him. Uh, one of the first people I wanted to reach out to him. We had a very base conversation. Uh, it's kind of grown a little bit through uh, Twitter, and uh, wanted to have him back on and have a, a, a decent chat tonight. How you doing, Elsie? Excellent, man. Excellent. Happy to be here. Yes, uh, very. I always look forward to uh, speaking with you. We haven't spoken that much, but uh, we have a good connection and we kind of come back. We kind of come from the same place, you know, our heritage, our grandparents and everything. And that's kind of what we touched on in our first conversation. Um, I see a lot of people starting to pay attention to kind of, you know, what we're talking about. How are things up in your neck of the woods? Is it getting cold yet? Oh, it was actually nice today. Uh it was probably 50, 55 today. So I was outside t-shirt and shorts and got some work done on the mine that I'm building on the homestead and, uh, got a, uh, an area framed up on the other side of the property. I got a new, uh, moving the vegetable garden on my property over next to the orchard. So I have, uh, an orchard on my property as well as an area with, uh, blueberries, raspberries, strawberries, that kind of thing. Um, so originally when this was my grandfather's farm, that right next to that was where the vegetable patch was. Um, probably like a half acre patch of uh, vegetables for the homestead. So I'm trying to get it back as close as I can to the original setup. Um, I had put a small vegetable patch in out in the back, uh, we call it the North 40, which is the backfield. And uh, so I'm trying to get everything concentrated to one area, you know, do some rearranging. So I did that and uh, want to try to get get some um, some good loom dropped off over there and let it sit over the winter um, so I can plant in the spring. I'm not too big of a fan of having soil brought in and planting right away. Um, I like to let it sit usually at least for a couple of months uh and then i usually till in some lime uh before i go to plant so just getting some stuff moved around getting ready for winter i mean it's uh we've had some cold nights uh we've had our first frost so uh you know harvest season is officially dead which is good and sad all in the same thing uh you know hunting season's open i got a deer already so life's good that's uh that sounds pretty uh uh change of seasons i love them i love the i love the harvest i love the harvest moon i love uh did you see the red moon the other night we had a, a little eclipse going on uh it's a time of the year that you know it means something it, it means that hey have you prepared are you gonna transition into the new season let's talk about, I want to talk, uh, touch on everything you just said, but I saw your pictures of your mind and how's that going? How's your mind going? It's coming along. Um, you know, it's, I've kind of approached it the same way that I approach, uh, 
everything else really. I mean, it's been a, uh, a slow, um, uh, how to describe it really. I mean, it's, it's a frugal take, right? Cause you know, I made a post about it the other day that, um, you know, a lot of people come into the Bitcoin space and start to talk about things like, you know, there's a, there's a lot of buzzwords, uh, especially on Bitcoin Twitter, right? Where people like to talk about sovereignty and people like to talk about, um, you know, living a life where, you know, when I grew up, it was called uh, being frugal. Uh, in Bitcoin, we like to say, you know, you're short Bitcoin if, you know, if you don't do all these things, you're short Bitcoin. And, you know, it's kind of comical for somebody with a background like me um, to watch people talk about that stuff because I never really thought about it in that fashion. Right. Cause that's just really like where I come from. Like we live that way because we have to live that way. Right. We live sovereign because we can't afford to go out and buy dinner every night. Right. We live in a frugal fashion because if we don't, we won't eat. Right. And if you don't want to be in top ramen in February, then your what you eat in February is tied to what you do in June. So it, it's been um, the way that I've approached the mine is very much the same way, right? Like, uh, you know, the building that I'm building the mine in, um, I scavenged. It was it was going to be crushed and thrown away at the town dump. And, uh, you know, I went through all the proper channels to acquire it. And it just so happened to come with all the wiring I would need to make a mine out of it. And it just so happened to come with 150 feet of galvanized conduit inside of it. So I've been able to scrap a good portion of what's in it. And, you know, I move things around and I'm starting to construct it. Basically, I think I've spent $150 on it so far and I'm almost plug ready. So it's, I approach it the same way I approach everything else on the homestead, right? You, you got to come from an area of, whether or not I have the money to build it out of my pocket, should I build it out of my pocket? Isn't that the first uh, thought you should have? I mean, that I, you're, you're just reminding me of things that my grandfather used to tell me. He'd always say, you want something, wait three days before you purchase it. In those three days, you're going to find a way to not spend as much money on what you want. And so you just kind of nailed that right there. And I, I don't think that's done enough, you know, and like you said, frugal lifestyle, that's all I, that's the only thing I ever known. I, I of course I've been, um, you know, I've spent too much money in my life, especially when I live in the city, but you know, back when, now that I'm back in, you know, that part of Texas, I am, you know, my income got cut in half when I came back here and I was totally okay with that because I know how to live in that frugal mindset. And, it is so much more rewarding to easy pace it, to low time preference it, to lockstep it into a way that is a culture, way that is a, a, a true um, based way of living. And I think that you're a very good example because, you know, I know what type of work you do and you can't function unless you're doing it that way, can you? No, not at all. And it's, you know, it's, it's funny you bring that up, right? Cause I was talking to somebody about this the other day and, um, you know, what I do for a living for those people that don't know, um, I drill residential water wells, uh, whether it be for farms or for houses, 
Uh, believe it or not, <laughs> there are a lot of people that don't understand that uh, water actually comes from the ground. Uh, there are a lot of people who don't understand that you don't just turn on the faucet and water magically shows up. Um, but the way that I do it, uh, I'm the last person in new England to do it the way that I do it. Um, the machines that I run are 1947 and 1953. Uh, there is no hydraulics. There is no, everything is very roughneck. Um, you know, it was started by my great uncle who was a 101st airborne division veteran from world war two. And, uh, you know, it was, I was taught frugality through that, uh, from a young age, right. He used to save and recycle oil filters. He used to, you know, reclaim the grease off the machine when the machine would be leaking grease, he would claim it and put it in a coffee can. And that's what he would reapply to the machine because, you know, and he used to laugh. There was a, there was a couple of, there was actually three businesses in my town that did it, uh, at that time. And I can remember him very vividly saying, uh, you know, talking about another guy in town saying, you know, that punk might must make a lot of money. He's buying a new truck every couple of years. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he used to, he used to talk about wasting it. And the, the man lived like a pauper and he died a millionaire. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was funny cause there was actually, there was actually, a, you know, a lot of salt about that in my family. Cause he left all his money to the church when he died. And, uh, <laughs> but that was how he was raised. Sure. And, uh, you know, to the, the low time preference thing, I see it a lot now. Uh, running this business that's been around, you know, he started it in 1950. So running this business that's been around that long, you know, the, the way that I drill a well takes about two weeks. Um, the new machines, the guys that are buying the brand new rigs, they're paying a million dollars for a rig. Uh, they can be in and out in two days. Um, but it's a very good, it's a very good, I want, I don't know if metrics the correct word, but it's a, I'll going to use it. Sure. Go <laughs> so for it's it. a very good, it's a very good metric of um, like how the world works, right? People want something and they want it right now. Um, which is what you get with this new fashion of drilling, right? They can come in and be out in two days. Now these guys that are coming in and out in two or three days are going down six or 700 feet. They're getting two gallons a minute. And they're burning 175 gallons of diesel fuel a day. It takes me two weeks. I'll go 150 feet. I'll get 17 gallons a minute. And I burn five gallons of diesel fuel every two days. <laughs> wow. So if you, it's, it's the low time preference thing that I didn't realize was low time preference until I got into Bitcoin and got educated on that phrasing but it's always been that way, right? It, you get these people that come down here where I live and, and, and you, that's a bad habit. I say down here, they usually come up here from New Jersey or wherever the hell they're from and they want it yesterday. And I tell them, you know, you can, you can get it yesterday, but it's going to cost you the same amount of money and I'll see you in six months. And I can't tell you how many times they've told me I'm not waiting two weeks and they'll call me a month later and say, Hey, they went down 800 feet and I don't have any water. Can you come drill me a well? And you've just spent double the amount of money because you just didn't want to wait to begin with. And now you're going to wait anyway. So it's just, it's, 
it's something that I've grown up around. It's something that is very, you know, I, I spend a lot of the time I spend eight hours a day sitting watching a machine go up and down. Right. <laughs> it's, it's not for everybody. You know, it's, it makes the same sound 50 times a minute for eight hours straight. It's, uh, you know, I, I laugh all the time. I tell my friends, you know, if they ever were going to try to put me in Guantanamo or something and they were going to try uh, audio torture, yeah. they got to try somebody else because I've been doing this way too long. You're vetted in that department. You're, you're good to go. <laughs> yeah, you can say battle hardened, you know? Yeah, there we go. Uh, you know, that's fascinating to me. I mean, just by whenever you say you, you take that time, and so people, you know, call you up and they've gone 800 feet and they don't have any water and how, what's the difference of what you're doing? Because you're bringing old skills from the forties, thirties, and even beyond, you know, before that, just your equipment is in from the fifties and forties. But what is, what is the difference be- between that? You taking your time doing it the way that you were taught, the way your, you know, your, your family, your heritage was taught. What is the difference on that? Because there's going to be a lot of people we hope that are be uh, drilling some wells here in the next five years. So the way there's a lot of, factors that go into how they cut down time uh using the new equipment Mm -hmm. Uh, a big a big factor is that is hydraulics you know it'll take i'll drill depending on the rock formation i'm cutting uh whether it's granite or slate or shale uh there's a coal seam that runs up here not far from where i am so we'll be drilling through coal sometimes um but you know anywhere between uh, 20 minutes and 45 minutes to go two feet. Uh, these new guys are going 20 feet in 10 minutes. They're pushing rods with hydraulics into the ground. Uh-huh. Um, the way they've cut down on a lot of time in order to do that is if you can imagine grouting like tile, right? Yep. They use what they call a mud pump and they force a mixture down the hole that keeps their drill bit cool so it doesn't burn up. The mixture they force down the hole is thick. It's called driller's mud. It's a polymer emulsion. Now, the way they get uh, smashed rock out of the hole is they flood the hole with this mud, and it runs over the top of the hole as they're drilling. The way we get smashed rock out of the hole is we'll pound two feet And then we send a hollow tube that's 15 feet long down the hole with a dart valve in the bottom of it. When it hits the bottom, the dart valve opens, all the cuttings go up in the tube and we pull them out. So by doing that, you're keeping the cuttings concentrated to the bottom of the hole. When they flood the hole, they're pushing all those cuttings up and out of the hole. Now the way water comes in is you have what they call veins in bedrock. There's cracks in the bedrock where water runs through. Their, um, their method only allows water to come in from the large veins. The small veins get grouted up like tile from this mud. Whereas, and they're physically drilling a hole in the rock. Our method is to pick up a piece of steel and drop it over and over again. So it fractures the rock as you go down. So we get all the little veins along with the big veins. So we, we may get a hundred veins that are doing a pint a minute. They're getting one large vein that's doing a gallon a minute. 
So what takes them a thousand feet, I can get done in a hundred and a half. That's, that's a good visual. I was, I was trying to figure that out and you just spelled it out right there. When you're fracturing that rock, boom, you're just creating more channels of water to flow and you're not gumming it up. That's, that's pretty exactly. Cool. That's, that's, I mean, that's the old school way to how they had to do it. Uh, you know, even in the oil industry in the very beginning, I don't know if you've ever seen There Will Be Blood. Um, did you ever see that movie? Yes. And how in the beginning, how they're, you know, that's all they did was dropped a piece of steel rod down into the ground. Boom. And that's the, that's that's the way they drilled. And so what you just said kind of made me uh, reminded me of that. And to be honest, I mean, we're. I'm spoiled now compared to how the, how the old timers did it. Right. I mean, I, you know, I, I take, uh, I take a lot of time to sit and listen to the, to the people who came before me, right. Whether it be Bitcoin or whether it be, um, what I do for a profession, uh, or whether it be farming, whatever it may be, right. The old timers knew something. They got by with a lot less than what we can get by with. And, uh, you know, I remember hearing stories of, you know, you couldn't come across steel cable in the fifties. It was, it was, you could come across it, but it was hard to come by. So these guys would run hemp rope until they got down into bedrock and then swap from hemp rope over to steel cable as to make the steel cable last longer. They would also have the bit that cut the rock was a solid piece of steel that was about eight feet long and six inches in diameter. So they would take that and beat it into the rock. It had a point on the end of it. Mm -hmm. Now beating it against the rock would take that point and turn it into a flat face with time. They would have a 55 gallon drum with coal in it and it would be burning hot. And they would drill until that thing would have no point on it. And they'd take that tool off and set it in the coal ash and get it hot, hot, hot. And now two men would take that piece of steel that weighed about 700 pounds and lay it on an anvil and beat a point with sledgehammers onto the end of it and then put it back on the machine and go down. Nowadays, I just buy the bits are maybe eight inches long and they have carbide buttons embedded in them. And I go down the hole with that. When the buttons fall out, I take it off and I put another one on. So there's, there's things that I'm spoiled in that the old timers were even more low time preference than I was. You know, it took a, a mule of a man to beat a piece of steel with a sledgehammer like that. Yes, it does. I was visualizing that because, you know, I come from metalsmithing, you know, nothing on that extent, of course. But, you know, I learned when I was young in Austin. And, uh, yeah, it takes a lot. That's a big piece of steel. And for them to, to get it hot, two men on an anvil, I, could, I, I picture that in my head. And... That is some work, man. That is that is some strength. I mean, doesn't it make you kind of want to get back to that way of doing it? <laughs> Seriously, it do, it does until uh, there's there's a a, a catch twenty two, I guess you could say, that comes along with that, where those <laughs> those bits had a real bad habit of getting stuck in the bedrock. Yeah, and uh, you know, my old man always says if I could ever invent a mouse that I could strap a camera to its back and send it down the hole and then teach it to tell me what it sees, I'd be a millionaire. 
because right. you're working blind. You know, when you're a hundred feet in the ground and something goes wrong, you know, there's, there's a, he used to say to me when I was young and ignorant, he used to say to me, there isn't a book on the planet you can pick up that'll teach you how to do this. You need to be able to put your hand on that piece of cable and you need to be able to know what is happening in the bottom of that hole by what you feel in that cable. And I used to think he was crazy. Now, years later that I have calluses in my palm from holding that piece of cable, I can tell you that when I grab that piece of cable, I can tell you what the bit is doing in the hole. I can tell you if the bit's turning. I can tell you what kind of rock I'm cutting. I can tell you if something's coming in the hole and what it is that's coming in the hole, whether it's gravel or sand. There's a there's feeling that you get in touch with that machine. I can be 100 yards away from it, listening to the pony motor run, and it can make one burp, and I can tell you something's wrong down the hole. So there's there's a... There's a way about it. And, you know, when you, when you get something stuck in the, in the bedrock down the hole and, uh, you know, the first time you spend two weeks trying to fish $8,000 worth of steel out of the bedrock, you get a whole new, uh, a whole new respect for the way that they did it because that was, those guys were built different, you know? Oh, they, they were. I mean, there's no question about that. We know that now. Uh, I don't think people understand the, the true caliber of man that existed at that time. You know, we're, we're talking about, you know, here we are in our generations and we're really trying to shed some light on on the power that they actually had, the the nutritional value that the food had and just the strength that they had to function on a daily basis and just not physical. But, you know, you go back, you know, their instincts, you know, the touch and feel of that cable, like you said, that cable, metal cable. You know, that takes hours upon hours. And I know exactly what you're talking about. I was trying to, you know, whenever I was, whenever I do something with a hammer and, you know, still there's a touch to it and you, you always can, you, you feel it, you feel it through the handle of the hammer. You feel it through that cable to where you, how many, you know, how many years did it take to where you had that instinct that had evolved through that touch and feel? And, you know, I want to I want people to understand that that is something that is extremely valuable. And what we have to understand is how you can bridge that into your life in so many different ways, because I see a bridge there from your personality, your your line of work and your your approach to basically your your family and how you you live your life on a daily basis. It has a touch and feel to it that is available for everyone but it takes time and it takes intentional focus in what you learn on the job out there i'm sure you bring a lot of that into your life into your family life and into your your basically your marriage your your fathership all of it and it, it's something there that is unspoken you don't hear about it but i know our forefathers had that and they were extremely powerful in every direction that they had to live their lives. And they could show up those mornings and get ready to hammer that still all day long, yank on those cables, lift that weight, that tonnage, and pound that rock as they were raising bigger families than us, uh, bigger houses that were built by hand. There was so much that we do not talk about. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's, it's funny to, uh, it's funny to look at all the things, you know, the thoughts that I have, right. When it comes to things like, like I said before about the bits, right? Like I have it so much easier than they did in that small example, but there's so many things that we don't think about because we have them. And even I would say really anybody that's still of working age now probably takes for granted the fact that, you know, even before the internet, they could turn on the TV and watch the morning news and they would know what the weather was going to be. Like something like that, especially with the industry that I'm in, I mean, my machine doesn't run if it's driving rain. I I rely on friction. Like, you know, everything is wrapped in asbestos pads that are rubbing against spinning steel in order to make things lift and make things drop. <laughs> These guys couldn't do that if it was driving rain. And I, I, I used, I remember my great uncle, when I was really young, he would walk outside, you know, we would be in the yard or whatever, and I'd be helping him. And he would look at me and he would turn his head and he'd say, you smell that? I can smell it. Rain's coming. And he, he could literally smell the change in the air that was coming. And that son of a gun was right nine out of ten times. He could feel it in his bones. He knew what to look for. He, would, he, taught, me, he taught me something that my wife still laughs at me for. I remember driving down the road with him. The man did this job, by the way, in a, a little Isuzu pickup truck, the little diesel ones, yeah. when I was little that had no business carrying the weight that he used to strap to the roof of it. But <laughs> I remember driving down the road with him and he would, the wind would be blowing and he'd say, you see that? You see how you can see the underside of the leaves when the wind blows? I say, yep. He'd say, rain's coming. You see the underside of the leaves? Rain's coming. Just little simple things like that, that we take for granted are the way that these guys operated and planned their days and were able to be successful and productive. Like that's, that's incredible to me to look back at it now. Cause I take it for granted. I wake up like everybody else. I wake up in the morning and I open my phone and I type in weather.com and I say, Oh, this is going to be the weather today. All right. Or I can look at three days from now and plan my week. These guys weren't planning their week in 1950. They were going day by day, minute by minute, hour by hour, most days. And to be able to do that and have a successful business is incredible to look back at. They had so many things that we would consider disadvantages today that they can then carry over, you know, and that being able to, you know, the, the idea of, you know, the metaphor of putting your hand on the cable, it goes for beef. It goes for farming. It goes for, you know, I'm sure, you know, and you know, ranchers who can walk out and put their hand on the side of a steer and say, this is what's wrong with this animal. Oh yeah. No question. I mean, I, I would just talk to a rancher a couple of weeks ago and he was, he, he totally showed me, uh, he knew something was wrong with the cow and how it had bruised. And he, sure enough, it, it, it was something that he already knew before it went into harvest. Uh, there's so many little stories like that, that you hear and you know, whenever you said that, uh, basically what it makes me think of is you said, we we maybe a disadvantage what i see is that they were so tuned in to their life 
to themselves, to the environment. Was it a disadvantage or was it an advantage that we don't see in our perspective is what is wrong? It's maybe they had far more advantage than we did at this time. Maybe all of these little things that we think are convenient structures and convenient uh, enablers are actually a huge disadvantage to really being tuned in to what we could be or maybe should be experienced experiencing as they did and it makes me think of why do you desire what you desire well one thing that i see somebody being able to predict the weather like that my grandfather was exactly the same way you know i see that as a huge metaphor of i desire to be able to tell whenever it's going to rain I don't desire to watch a programming sequence to tell me when it's going to rain. My grandfather, he had a barometric pressure, of course, most farmers always do, but he knew whenever something was hitting. I mean, that was the last thing he did when he walked out the door was look at the pressure gauge. I want to get one of those, you know, that's something that I'm, I'm definitely going to obtain here. But I see as being tuned in, the more that we are separated from ourselves ourselves and our senses, because we are, we're, we're being separated from our senses at this time. Our physical space is being stolen away from us. And that physical space is our, is our senses. I think it's time to get back to being able to predict the weather with just the smell, with just the, how the wind hits the bottom of the leaf. Absolutely. There's a, I don't know if you guys have it down there. Uh, but we have a thing up here. It may be a Yankee thing, but um, I have one on the outside of my house. And, uh, you know, I kind of get goofed on by some of my friends for it. But there's a thing up here we have called a weather stick. <laughs> and it nails to the front of your house. And it's not very long, maybe eight inches long. And it's real thin like a twig. And uh, depending on if that stick is pointing down at the ground or if it's straight up and curled, we'll tell you if it's going to rain or if it's going to be dry. And things like that are just, you know, things we bring forward from the old timers. You know, my, my, uh, my father that works with me, um, you know, he's in his mid fifties, but you would think he was born in the thirties. He couldn't give a shit less about this world. He couldn't give a shit. He don't have internet at his house. He doesn't want it. And, uh, you know, I, I bought this, this piece of property and I, I, I came back like you talked about, right? And yeah. uh, it's, we have a funny saying in this town where when you're growing up, you do everything you can to leave, and then you get out in the real world, and you realize the only place you want to be is back here. And, uh, you know, I started I started growing some vegetables, and I started doing some farming. And, uh, you know, I had all these great trinkets, right? I'm going to check the pH of the soil, and I'm going to do all this stuff. <laughs> and uh, he always outperformed me growing and uh you know <laughs> i i used to complain i just this past season i complained to him i said man i don't get it my peppers didn't do what i wanted them to do this year and uh you know he walked right over and he grabbed a handful of soil and he took a smell of it he took a little taste of it and he was like yeah your soil's off soil's run out you can't just run the same soil every year can't just can't just you can't just harvest the same dirt every year. It doesn't work like that. 
and it, you know he just runs this very humble little patch of vegetables and it produces like he could feed five families off this little patch of ground and it just it blows my mind to watch him do stuff like that and that's the stuff that i strive for you know that's the stuff that i soaked up in my younger years you know walking through the woods and he would say little he would drop little it's probably really awful modern terminology but he would drop these little gems of knowledge on me right and he would say things to me when we were walking through the woods like you see that birch right there you're ever in the woods and you got a headache strip the bark away from that birch the green in between the wood and the and the bark that's natural aspirin you chew on that that'll get rid of your headache little things like that and i used to like be like oh yeah la 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 and the older i get i'm like wow you know, I was talking to somebody, I think it was Diverter, no KYC the other day, and he was like, you know, the older we get, the smarter our fathers are. And he's absolutely <laughs> right. Of course. Uh, you know, I do a lot of writing, and I did. I wrote something along that line, you know, that the the silver in his hair was the was the wisdom I missed as as I was younger. And you, it's so true. It's just our father my father is 80 years old now and i always i always dug my father but you know we we had our problems as you know any father and son does but one thing i always i did see in him was wisdom and uh you know it he's an asset he's he's definitely an asset and i think that guys our age in our generational you know on gen x you're a little bit younger but we need to respect the wisdom of our fathers, our uncles, and especially our grandfathers, and then their their fathers and grandfathers. There's something there that the Bitcoin world needs to understand that we're all busy looking out here for the answers outwards, you know, in a way that we have to look this interface surface level living that we're doing. But really, I see a lot of the answers that we're pursuing back behind us a little bit it's on our six and you know, the history of their, of the way they did things and, you know, simple things as chewing some bark off of a birch tree, you know, there, that has a thousand different meanings to it. That sense of common sense. And, you know, we have to realize this as young men or middle-aged men, whatever you want to call it, that, there's something that a lot of our generations missed and that we re, we we had to revisit and we have to bring it to our families we have to bring it to our relationships and we have to bring it to our children my number one goal is to make my son more based than i was and it's going to take time and you know i know that you're you're a huge family man and I can only imagine, you know, the time that you put in as far as what you've uh, kind of engineered your life to be right now. Yeah, I mean, it. it's a, I've, you know, I've said it before, right, that um, it's a decision that you have to make to uh, to really decide what is important to you, right? There's there's all these other distractions going on in the world. And, uh, you know, I've been, some people would look at my life and say, I've had a really hard life. Um, 
I would rather look at it and say that I've been blessed with all these learning opportunities. You know, my, my 20s, some people would look at and say that they would never want to go through that. And in my 20s, I learned enough to be a better man for my 30s, right? Um, my, my oldest son is 10. Um, I had him in my early 20s. At that time, money was everything to me. Um, you know, I, I would, <laughs> I did a, I had a horrible role in the world at that time. I was the guy that, that changed the locks on your house when you didn't pay your mortgage during the housing collapse. And, uh, that, that work took me everywhere. Um, you know, I would go to Tennessee for a month. I would come home. I would go to Pennsylvania for a month. I would come home. I would go to Florida and I missed Christmas and I missed Christmas Eve and I missed Halloween and I missed Thanksgiving. I missed all these things that at the time I told myself it was more important to be providing, uh, only to look back at the end of that and say all the money that I made couldn't buy that time back. I couldn't buy my son's first Halloween back. No matter what I bought him, I could buy him the coolest video game there was going. But the fact of the matter is, I wasn't there. So nothing, no amount of money can ever buy experiences in life. And unfortunately, I see a lot of... Um, my heart hurts for the people that are into Bitcoin and, and talk about you know what they're going to do when it hits a certain price and they're going to buy these things or have these things. And it's like, you, you're missing the point. The point is life is about experiences. Life is not about money. Money should act as a tool to allow you to enjoy the experiences of life. Right. I get with my skill set. I get offered jobs to go elsewhere and make three times the amount of money that I make. But the fact of the matter is I work four minutes from home. I rarely leave my town to go to work. I'm out the door at seven 15 and I'm home by four 15, five days a week. Right. I get to see my kids. I get to spend time with my kids. I get to be present in my family. I missed all that in my early 20s. I would give any amount of money to have that back to do over again. I can't do it over, but I can do better this time, right? Because my youngest is a year. So I have a, a one-year-old, a three-and-a-half-year-old, and a 10-year-old. That three-and-a-half-year-old and that one-year-old, hope if I have it my way, will never have to experience the things that I missed for my 10-year-old. And my 10 year old moving forward will never have to miss those things. So for me, it's, it's not about any of that. It's about the experiences. It's about being able to spend time. It's about being present. It's about being able to walk my 10 year old through the woods and say, you see that birch tree, pull off a piece of the green underneath the bark when you have a headache, because one day he'll be able to look back and tell his son that that's what I hope, right? Like you said, I, I, my wish for my son is for him to be more base than I was. Cause all I could think about was money. I wanted to get the fuck out of this town. I want this town. I w was a dead end. It was horrible here. There was so much life to live outside of it. <laughs> and I went and did all these things 
and I came right back here. <laughs> I just want to be here. Yeah. Um, you, you talked about the phrase that you guys use up there. Of course, down here in Texas, we say you can get the, the boy out of the country, but you can't get the country out of the boy. And, you know, and both of us can look at that. And I was I did a podcast with my uh, producer, my meat producer last week. Uh, it's a fascinating podcast. He's so intelligent. He is of a younger generation. I went to school with his father, actually. Uh, his father was older than me, but he was about three years older than me. But, you know, he never left. And the amount of damn education and intelligence that guy has in everything that I'm doing. And I can't I can't look back and say, oh, I should have never have left because I wouldn't I've done some fascinating stuff. You know, you can't have your cake and eat it, too. But, you know, the yearning is there. And, you know, maybe I wouldn't be so passionate about what I'm doing right now if I wouldn't have left. You might not have been as passionate. But, yes, there might be a level of regret there because those times do become more valuable. Sometimes, you know, we're tired for the time, but sometimes we come, we become wiser for the time. And that's something that you can always hope for. And, you know, you're, you're definitely there. You're, you, you found it. I was going to ask you when you were tell, telling me all this, because you went off to the city, you did all the t- type of stuff that, you know, young men do. Did you have a moment where you just said, this is no, this is it. This is wrong. This is, you know, when did you make that decision? What was it? Was there a, a certain more something happened or was it you just said, I, I'm missing out on life? What was it? To be honest with you? Yeah. I didn't say it. My wife said it to me. That was, I, I, I uh, that, <laughs> the mental strain of being in the industry that I was in when the housing market collapsed yeah. um, didn't do me any favors. And when I came out of that and looked back at the damage that I had caused um, to the average person by participating in that system, um, it took me down a really dark path in my mid twenties. And, um, you know, my, my wife I've known since high school, we dated four years in high school. Uh, we went our separate ways cause I had to go and I was going to live this great life and make all this money. And, uh, you know, I don't believe in coincidences and, um, my little after my mid twenties, she showed up at my grandfather's funeral. Um, she was still friends with a couple of my family members and, uh, you know, that was September. We started, uh, seeing each other again the week after, uh, we were engaged in March and married in October. Um, and you know, she said to me, I, she had, she had gone off and made a very good career for herself. Um, and she looked at me and said, I I just want to move back to, you know, the town and uh, I just want to have a little farm and I want to have a family and I don't want all this. And uh, it was like, so, it was like somebody released the pressure valve. Like I no longer had all these expectations that I set on myself. I no longer had to live up to. Right. I had this person who is my best friend. Tell me, I don't care if we ever have a Lamborghini I don't care if we ever live in a mansion. I just want to have a little piece of land 
and I just want to live a simple life. And uh, I knew how to do that, right? Like I came from a place where I knew how to do that. So that's what I did. I made, I, I left uh, an industry that where I was making a boatload of money and uh, I came back here and I started putting holes in the ground again. And uh, man, I'm so much, I, I make less, less money now than I have probably ever made in my life uh, as an adult. Um, and I am happier now than I have ever been. That is being blessed, my friend, to have a wife, a best friend as you have. That is that is definitely a blessing. Somebody is smiling upon you. <laughs> and uh, congratulations on that. That sounds that that just sounds awesome, man. I, it, when you said that, you know, it took that weight off. You want to talk about a feeling of freedom that us men, we carry this stress in this weight of the world on our shoulders, thinking that we have to do things. And whenever we realize we can do things our way, what is in our DNA, not what society is telling us to do. You want to talk about, my, my father is a counselor, I think I've said that. He always said acceptance is the key. Once you can accept something, then you can begin your new journey, no matter what it is. If you can accept that you're fucked, you can accept that you're a dumbass, you can accept that you're broke, or you accept that you're not going to be a millionaire, whatever it is, if you can bring that to your own mindset and to your agency as a man in our society, that is a superpower. And I want people to understand what I'm saying here. The answers are within you. You do not have to prove yourself to society. You have to prove yourself to your own instincts and to quit carrying that weight. You can't even probably very, you probably can't be very articulate to me right now why you were doing that type of job during the housing crisis. Was it? No. A, it was, was money. Quiet? Yeah, it's money. Well, that money, what you know, whenever you're searching for money that way, is a quiet form of desperation. Is all that is. Instead of saying, "Fuck no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do it." And we've all done it. We've all had those bullshit jobs. But once again, hindsight, whatever. We all have to go through that process of getting there. And um I think that's cool that you had to experience that. And you actually have somebody that loves you that help you see, probably, see, you know, see the reflection of yourself that you weren't allowing yourself to see. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, I had a, <clears throat> I guess for the, for the purposes of this, I'll call him a mentor. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he taught me a lot of valuable things, uh, a lot of valuable life lessons, but, he told, he would call that money, property, and prestige. That's what I was chasing, right? I thought that if I had enough money or if I had a shiny enough car or if I had a big enough house, that that would make me whole. It's never the case. There's never enough, right? And, uh, you know, he, he would say things to me like, uh, setting expectations on yourself is not a good thing, 
right? There's a big difference between expectations and goals, right? Expectations are just premeditated resentments. You set expectations on yourself or other people. You're setting yourself up to have a resentment against yourself or against that other person, right? It's okay to have goals for yourself, but it's also okay to not achieve those goals. It's also okay to try again, right? We don't have to be perfect. These are all things that like, when you're a young man, the machoism doesn't tell you that. The machoism tells you that you need to be the best of the best, the fastest of the fastest, right? It, it's bullshit. We put, our, we put ourselves on a mental hamster wheel of goals that are unattainable due to our circumstances. And I don't want to hear about the one in, one, one in a million guy that came from nothing and now he's a gazillionaire. Good for him. Hmm. He's not me. And I don't need to be him. Right? I, I made a post about it the other day. And part of that post was our bank accounts may never have the same number in them, but I'm rich in ways that most people will only ever read about. So true. And I've, I've said that a couple of times on my podcast as well in a, in a different way. You know, I said, you don't know my wealth. I already got my wealth secured. I already got my wealth. Nobody knows what it is and you never will because it's protected. And good luck trying to find out what that wealth is. <laughs> I'll let you guess. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, you know, that's something I, I hold dear to me is like, man, you can't you can't even get close to the type of wealth I've got going on. And, and I'm glad you brought that up. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's, it's you just said something, the hamster wheel. What I whenever I was younger, and I believe it was probably in my twenties as well, when I was in Austin and I was trying to do the game and everything, and I was having some success. But I remember finding times where I was answering to people in my life that I wasn't even around anymore. And I was answering, you know, decisions that I was trying to make because I was alone in Austin. I, I was a lone wolf in Austin. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any family there. I didn't have any brothers. I didn't. My father was he was out of the picture at that time. I mean, I had zero. And whenever I was trying to find out how to be a, a based young man in certain ways that, you know, maybe I didn't have the guidance that I really needed, I was answering to people that weren't the best influences on me whenever I was younger. And I always had to fight that. And I don't know if a lot of people have ever gone through that, but what it was, it was me trying to keep up on that. It was a competition. It was like you hear people saying, well, living rent free in your head. I had that when I was in my twenties to where I could, you know, I had to play a competition with somebody that wasn't even present and that didn't need to be in my head as well. And I needed that guidance. I needed that compass. I needed that direction, that mentoring. And so, you know, anybody out there that's in their twenties or whatever, whatever age you're younger, listen to what we're saying here, because I, I, I think it's, it's a very valuable lesson to hear right now that I think you and I collectively just kind of spelled out. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the main takeaway should be if 
if you're running around trying to fill a hole in your life with money uh, or with things, that hole that you're trying to fill is probably not money or things. There's something else there that you're just not willing to take a look at. That's my experience. My experience is I, I had these things in my life that I wanted and I dressed them up as other things. Right. What I the only thing I ever really wanted in my life was to be a good father and to be a good husband and to have a happy life. Right. I wanted to build a legacy that I could pass on to my sons. But I couldn't say that in my early 20s, because in your early 20s, what you suppose what society tells you you're supposed to want is to go out and drink and party and try to get with as many girls as you can, you know, and I'm probably going to get dogged on for this. And I don't, I don't really give a fuck. All right. That's the best part about being based is I, I don't even really give a shit what anybody thinks. Right. But I, I said the other day in a group chat with some people that, you know, the simplest way to put it is in my early twenties, I thought what made a man was to sleep with 10,000 girls one time. What I found in my late twenties and early thirties is what makes a man is having the self-control and the, the discipline in your life to sleep with one woman 10,000 times. That's what nobody ever told me. That's what I needed to learn, right? That it's, it's not about this stupid unattainable image that you so desperately want or that I so desperately wanted to portray in my early twenties. That's bullshit. You know what that is? You know what the dude that does that has, he lays down at night and he feels more fucking alone than anybody in the world. And I can tell you because I've been that guy. It's so true. I mean, it really is. And in, in a psychological viewpoint, it's, it's a, it's a deep seated form of insecurity. Um, cause it's overcompensation, you know, in, in, in the wrong ways to obtain that type of attention through, you know, sexual proudness, uh, you know, scoring, you know, screwing as many women as you can, whatever it is, what that really means is there is, there's a void there. The, that void is like what you just said. It creates a loneliness that a lot of young men don't even have the communication tools, the aptitude of language to even understand the emotion that they're feeling. And, you know, I do a lot of mentoring and I was mentoring this young kid. He's about 20, 21. And I said, you know, what's, what's wrong with you? And the reason you make a lot of mistakes, because he was making a lot of mistakes. I said, the reason you're making these mistakes is because you're not a mastery of the English language yet, because you use stupid ass words and you're not able to express yourselves in an intelligent way. Therefore, that lack of communication within your own mindset and your own vocabulary leads to your own personal destruction. And it, that kind of hit hit home with him, and it, it, he did. He improved after that. He started, you know, learning how to speak differently. He quit using bullshit words. And I think that's a lot that we do at that age is we don't know how to communicate within our, in our own mind because of our limited vocabulary and our insecurity that is a front to scoring to us doing whatever it is, like you said. 
I spent so much time worrying about how the rest of the world saw me that I never took time to consider how I saw myself. Yep. That's the biggest thing, right? That's, and there's, there's guys that I, you know, I, I guess you could say mentor, right? For the, for the purposes of this, that's what we'll call it. Sure. And, you know, I, I tell them all the time, like, listen, you, you know, they, they get out of the dark time in their life, like what I went through and they instantly want to jump right into a relationship with somebody. And I'm like, listen, man, you're not bringing anything to the table. You're showing up empty handed. You need to worry about you before you can worry about somebody else. Right. Cause at the end of the day, if I don't love me, right. If I don't look at me and say, I like me and I like what I got going on, then I have nothing to bring to the table for my wife. I have nothing to bring to the table for my kids. How the fuck can I look and at my wife and say, I love you when I can't even look in the mirror and say, I love myself. That's where it all starts. It all starts with a relationship with yourself. If you don't have a relationship with yourself, then I highly suggest if you're listening to this, you spend some time making one. Spend some time with yourself. And if you think you have a relationship with yourself, shut your phone off. Go spend four hours with yourself. And if you can't stand to spend four hours with yourself, that might be something you want to look at. They may, that may be the root cause of why all the other relationships in your life don't seem to work. Spoiler alert, if 10,000 relationships don't work, it's probably not 10,000 other people. It's that's it's so simple. It really is. And it's the most scariest place to go for a lot of a lot of guys. And it's the it's the most beneficial thing that you could ever do in your life. And and I don't know what it well, you know, it's our society, how we live now, especially. I mean, we're living a most most men are nihilistic in ways. Um, they they have a sense of feudalism. Uh, they're digital serfs they don't trust themselves away from the phone for four hours for one, you know, they don't have the hard skills and this is not a judgment. This is not, this is a generalization that I see as a danger and that is threatening, you know, men in our life, in, in, in our society for one. And they need to, they need to come to grips with that. They need to go look in that damn accountability mirror and be able to answer every question that, you know, they need to be honest with themselves that they need to answer. And if they can't do that, then, you know, change, change something, change, change one small little attribute of your life. Um, that could be basically how you look at family. That could be how you look at relationships. That could be how you look at your job. That could be how you look at the food that you consume. That could look uh, at the overall consumption. You know, we talk about consumption. Well, we're consuming 24-7. We're consuming through audio, through visual, and through our mouths as far as food. And if you can't check your consumption, and if you can't start becoming a producer instead of a consumer, you're kind of fucked, and you need to understand that. And you need to say, okay, how can I start producing more than I'm consuming? And 
because I, I, I call a lot of, you know, I have this thing, guys that, you know, they're going to make change and they're going to, they're going to watch a bunch of motivational videos. <laughs> and, then, and then their motivational video, you know, their motivation becomes to go watch that next motivational video. So they become a, I call them a motard. They become a motard. And, you know, motivation, motivation gets you out to the, the front door. You know, it takes, it takes true discipline to actually make change and to have accountability. And, you know, that goes back to your type of lifestyle, your type of blue collar skill set, your type of raising your family. You know, it's, it all comes together and it all comes from heritage, tradition and instinct, touch and feel. You're tuned in to something that you probably wish you were tuned in earlier, but you're tuned in now. And I think that's pretty, pretty kick ass. Yeah, and I think that's really, I mean, for me, that that mentor that I had in my life, right? He he told me that when when he he first came into my life, right, and I I, I had a relationship with this man, uh, I was unaware and incapable of having a relationship with another grown man, uh, not something that I was aware of. Right. Um, and he said to me that he was going to challenge me to get a belief system. <laughs> and then once I thought I had a belief system, he was going to challenge that belief system and see if I really stood on what I said I believed. I'm so grateful for that. If, you know, I, I was talking in, with some friends that, uh, you know, I, I have a little chat that I put together on Telegram where we talk about engineering ideas for mining. And, uh, you know, we kind of got off on a tangent and uh, I was I was saying to him, you know, <laughs> the the government could come out tomorrow and say that Bitcoin is illegal. And I'm not unplugging a single fucking miner. <laughs> of course not. My. If that is if what it takes is some man you've never met writing a piece of paper that you'll never read to tell you that you can't do something is all it takes for you to stop doing something. That was never your belief system in the first place. That was just something that it was fun or convenient to talk about. Do you really stand on what you believe when it's not easy to stand for what you believe? Can you stand on your principles? Right. And for me, I like to call it like living a spiritual life. Right. And that, that can be taken so many wrong ways that the, the, the bare bones of that is for me, spirit, living a spiritual life is living in spiritual principles. Spiritual principles for me are things like honesty, integrity, things like that. Right. So can I live a life based on those things? Can I live a life where those things are an intricate part or an integral part of what I do every day. And if not, what am I doing? Right. That, that same mentor said to me, one day you will get to a place where you can wake up. And at the end of the day, you can sit down with your three-year-old and not be afraid to tell him everything you did that day. When you can do that, you live a spiritual life. And that, that, that simple thing 
is how I try to live. Right. When I, when I'm going about my day and I'm doing something that may, may not jive with the morals and values that I have, I have to look at it through a simple lens like that. Can I sit down and tell my, my three-year-old who has no concept of why I would do something out of outside of a moral reason? Can I tell him that and feel okay? Would I feel okay if I told him that and he went and did the same thing? Simple things like that are the way that you get to living a life that you can be proud of. You can, will you live a life where you're not looking constantly for something else to fill that hole inside of you, right? It's very important for me to live a life where I'm, like I said earlier, right? I like to shut my mouth and listen to the people who came before me. That same mentor told me, you don't have to like your predecessors, but you should respect your predecessors, right? Am I living a life where I'm allowing myself to be poured into as much as I'm pouring out? Because if I'm not, at some point, you're pouring from an empty cup. I'm telling you or telling somebody else how to live in a way that I don't practice myself. I'm saying something that sounds good for the sake of it sounding good, not because it's what I believe or the way that I live. And that's fucking bullshit. That's the same bullshit we come from the world outside of when we come into the Bitcoin space, right? We come into the Bitcoin space and there's this great place of honesty and everything, right? That's how we try to hold people to this standard. Exactly. If you're not living that way, it's great to get on Twitter and be like, blah, 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 you should do this. But are you fucking living that way? Yeah. And the thing I always like to tell people, you know, when you get in the Bitcoin space, the Bitcoin's going to expose the truth. It's going to expose the corruption. It's going to expose anything that you've ever touched in a way. So, so be ready. I mean, you can, you can talk shit all you want, but guess what? It, it, it It's going to be exposed. And that's why I love all these LARPers and all these guys that are exploiting the Bitcoin space. Cause you know, it, it it's going to be found out, you know, it, it's going to happen to where, the truth will be exposed. So you better start learning to live in the truth if you're going to be a true Bitcoin philosophy type of person. You know, you were talking about you know, mentoring and everything. I've talked a little bit about mentoring. One of my biggest things that I've I've always done to you know the people that I've consulted or mentored is that I say, "Do you know what true? What do you own? What do you own in life?" And they'll come back, well, like, I own a mountain bike, <laughs> I own my car, <laughs> I own whatever, a PlayStation. <laughs> and so, you know, they say all this shit. And I said, what? Okay, okay, that's that's fine. What, what do you what do you see as true ownership? And, you know, that just stumps the shit out of them. They don't they don't know how to answer that question. So I take them down this little path. It's a discovery. It's a discovery path discovery to what true ownership is. Well, we have to own our lies for one. We have to own our deceptions and we get, and we're privileged enough to be able to own our truths in a way that people need to understand, especially young men that we're talking to right now, I believe. If you own your truth, you want to talk about a life well lived, you're on your damn way. No matter the consequence, no matter the outcome, if you can own your truth, 
then you're going to be above and beyond most people in our society, especially right now. Everybody talks about how shitty it is out there and what we're, what we're going to be up against. And we are. It's coming. But the one thing that will win in the end is a virtuous truth, a virtuous ownership of that truth is going to be a superpower that people do not understand. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, again, it comes back to, you know, the, the people that milk the scene are one thing. Uh, the shit that really gets under my skin is the grifters. Yeah. The people who just kind of shape shift into whatever this week's flavor of being is. And it was, it was funny. Cause I remember when, you know, the, the Bitcoin conference happened in Miami and everybody was like, Oh, you know, big shocker. Your favorite Bitcoin influencer doesn't just eat steak. And I'm like, exactly like you guys how do you not see this and it's it may be my upbringing or whatever but i I have a very good nose for if you're full of shit or not when i talk to you you give me about five minutes in a conversation with somebody and i can tell you whether they're worth their fucking whether they're worth listening to or not or whether they're just talking out their ass yep and all these you know there was it was the big carnivore push in the Bitcoin space. And it was like, I under, I I get it. I get it. And I get where people are going with it. Right. And it works for some people and, and that's great. And you know, I, I am personally, I live a life based on if I can raise it or I can grow it, I eat it. That's the way I live. I don't, I personally don't see anything wrong with that. I like, you know, I source all my, my, I either raise or I source my local animal protein. I hunt it this time of year and I grow what I can grow and I, I can what I can can and I preserve what I can preserve. And that's how we live. And there's, Go ahead. <laughs> well, that's the only way. And I mean, people are, they, they go to the extremes with it. I mean, look at me. I got the Texas Beef Initiative, you know, but I'm the first to say I don't eat steaks seven nights a week. And you posted something the other day and it was, you know, a homegrown type of, you know, dish. It's a family dish or something like that. And, you know, I think I put food intelligence on there because, you know, it was, it was creative. It was, and I knew it was, it was sourced in a respectful and proper way to where it wasn't this industrial food group, you know, sludge trash. And, you know, somebody said white trash. I said, hell yeah. (laughs) Whatever you want to call it, I guarantee you that what you had put together was probably more nutritious than most people eat in a week. And so, you know, as far as a carnivore diet, no, my purpose is to get pure animal protein, whatever it may be. Mine is beef. I love beef. I'm in Texas. It's a Texas thing. But, uh, you know, I source my fowl. I source my lamb. I source my pork. I source my beef locally. And, you know, that's what you do as well. And you, you and I had that conversation before. And so, you know, I think that you're very well intentional and you actually you have a very direct source to all of your nutrition and your protein 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's my wife kind of laughs about it, right? Because me and my wife come from we couldn't come from any more opposite backgrounds. My wife is raised in a city that's about 40 minutes from me uh, in a, a government cheese diet. Um, <laughs> that's that's how she grew up. And I grew up very different than that. And she laughs all the time. You know, she'll she'll say say things to me like there's nothing to eat in the house. And then I'll cook dinner. And she'll be like, well, how did you, how I looked in the cabinets? There was nothing. Now, mind you, you could open the cabinets and you can't fit a mouse fart in the cabinet. There's so much shit in the house. Right. But that's the way I was raised. Right. I, I my grandmother would I was actually going to make a post today about it, saying that, you know, if if you're using measuring cups and teaspoons and shit to cook, <laughs> you're doing it wrong. Oh yeah. I, you know, my, my grandmother would cook and no two, she would cook the same dish twice and it didn't taste the same two times because you cooked with what you had available. Right. And I say that like she would make pot roast, but pot roast was never the same two times in a row because pot roast was whatever she had available for spices in the cabinet and whatever we had. And that's the same way I cook. And my wife kind of dogs on me all the time. She's like, Oh, this is so good. Too bad. We can never recreate it. <laughs> I'm like, well, you know, it's what we had. It's what we had on hand. And that's how I cook. You know, I made breakfast this morning and it was, I'm actually really lucky. There's a apple orchard in town that the youngest son has started growing gourmet mushrooms. He grows oh, really? them right at the apple orchard. Fantastic. So I did, you know, I had, we had eggs this morning. We always have friggin' eggs. So I did, you know, eggs and peppers from our garden that I had left over. And I had some mushrooms that I got from him and, you know, some, some real butter. And it was like, all right, well, I'm going to make breakfast. And I made it. And she was like, oh, this is great. You know, next Sunday is not going to taste like this. And it was like, <laughs> no, it's not. But it's, there's a certain skill that comes along with being able to, make something out of nothing or what appears to other people to be nothing because you know our forefathers didn't have the luxury of being able to go to the store and say well i want to have meatballs on wednesday and i want to have pork chops on friday they had what they had available and you cooked it different every time you cooked it because like you said if i gotta eat steak every night of the week I don't want to eat salt and pepper steak Monday through Friday. Like right. I, I want to eat something that tastes good to me each day, even though it may have the same base. Yeah, that is so true. And it, one thing about it is whenever you cook like that, when you're not having to eat, it's, it's such a, how's it, what, my grandmother, she, she, of course, she was the best cook in the world. Everybody had the best cook in the world as a grandmother, right? You know, but she was, you know, a farm cook. And it was amazing how she could put stuff together and just feed a freaking, you know, a family of 30. And, you know, she she never used one teaspoon, one measuring cup, like you said. <laughs> it was like, oh, my God, you know, to, to go back and be able to record that back in the day to watch how they operated around the kitchen. And then, of course, my mother, you know, she, she learned how to cook when she was, you know, five, six. And she, once again, she'll make here in Texas, it's, and I'm, I stand by this 100% chicken fried steak. 
I'm just never going to let oh. that go. <laughs> and it's the best chicken fried steak anywhere is in Texas. And of course, my family makes the best chicken fried steak. <laughs> and uh, I even sent the recipe to Princey uh, once bitten because he'd never heard anything about chicken fried steak. But anyways, it's never it's never the same twice. And it's it's something that it lives in our family. But it always it's one thing. It's always damn good. And it's always sourced from the right sources that's what matters sourcing being that close to your food understanding where it is coming from is so very important moving forward and that's the number one reason i'm doing the texas beef initiative it's why i'm actually connecting all these dots and what i did today i wrote an article and it was something about there's not enough cowgirls in bitcoin and there's not enough bitcoin in the cowgirl space. And what I'm doing is I'm bringing the country form of living, that traditional heritage way of looking at things, and I'm bringing it into it, our food and into our lifestyles. And, you know, we need, we need more of that in the Bitcoin space. And I think that you and I bring that. And, every, you know, every time we talk, we, we touch on things we not really rehearsed at all. The conversation just flows. Um, I want to I want to give you uh, condolences to your grandmother um, and everything. I saw that she passed, and you know it made me think of my grandparents whenever they passed, and in the in what I went through whenever they did. It, it really made me reflect on the good times, the the wisdom, the love, the heritage that they always brought that maybe we don't see until you know they're gone. Yeah, absolutely, and. Uh... You know, first of all, I, I appreciate you saying that, you know, it, uh, it means a lot. And, um, you know, I'm again, man, I'm, I'm, as you said, I'm blessed that I have the opportunity to raise my kids under the same roof that she raised her kids under. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I was actually talking to my wife about it the other day and, um, my grandmother and my grandfather, um, they got divorced before I was born. And, um, this is the house that she raised her kids in, but she hadn't been here in 40 years. And it just so happens that maybe about three months ago, she pulled in this driveway for the first time in 40 years. And she saw my kids and she got out and she played with my kids and she got to like see the house and, you know, right outside of my front door, there's an oak tree that's got to be 60 feet tall. That oak tree that's 60 feet tall in front of my front door was planted by my uncle on Arbor Day 60 years ago. Wow. And I told her that, and she said, no way, that's that tree? I said, yeah, that's that tree. It's still here. And she looked around, and a tear came to her eye. Because this, this piece of property left my family five years ago. My grandfather passed away. My grandfather was a veteran. Um, it's disgusting and disgraceful how this country treats its veterans. Yes. They, to make a long story short, he had to have zero net worth in order for them to pay for any of his care at the end of his life. So this property left my family because there was six brothers and sisters. And 
I was lucky enough that the stars aligned that I was able to buy this piece of property back. And, you know, I say that to say when she was here, a tear came to her eye and she looked around and said that it made her life to know that her grandson was taking care of this piece of property again. You know, there's an orchard that they planted that was never there. I have apples and pears and peaches that were never on this property that they planted that now are 25 feet tall because they were never taken care of, you know, for the last probably 10 years. Cause he was, you know, in assisted living, I came and I pruned all those trees back and I brought them back and I came and I took care of this property and I cleaned it up. And I'm, you know, like I said earlier, I'm moving the vegetables back to where the vegetables used to be. And I, I'm making this piece of property what it was. Instead of something sad, which this country is all too known for nowadays, which is somebody who has some white collar job coming here, knocking down the family house, building some McMansion and visiting it twice a year because they like the piece of property. Instead, I live in the manufactured home, call it a trailer or a manufactured home, whatever you want to call it, that my grandfather put on this foundation in the 70s. Right? I live in that same home. I live in this same piece of property. I farm the same land. I pull vegetables from the same dirt. I pull fruit from the same trees that they did. Like that, that's a beautiful thing. And to be able to have my grand, my grandmother come back here after all that time and see that this piece of property is not only still here, but it's thriving with a young family in it, with kids growing up here, running around the yard. I apologized to her when she was in my driveway. I said, I'm really sorry. The yard's a mess. There's kids toys everywhere. She said, you have no idea how much joy it brings to my heart to look in the front yard and see kids toys here. That's the way it should be. Don't be sorry. This is how it should be. Man, that's a hell of a story. I mean, you want to talk about ownership. (laughs) You're owning on a whole new level there, man. Um, You know, I didn't even know that whenever I was, you know, brought it up, basically. Uh, That's that's fascinating. And, And much respect to you for that. Um, I love the whole, the drive and inspiration that that gives and, you know, having the vegetable garden back to where it was, having the trees that you prune coming back to life, everything. That is what we have to do, especially as men right now. We have to, it's Bitcoiners. We have to see what you're, you know, you have to spread that out in the way that you just did. Because that is something extremely valuable. We talked about wealth earlier. You've got a lot of wealth going on there, brother. Um, good for you, man. Lots of respect. I'm blessed, man. I'm I'm blessed. And it's funny, like, you know, we talked about earlier, uh, you know, the older you get, the wiser your father gets. And um, yeah, to see life come full circle and, you know, everything I despised about this town when I was young. I love about it now. And, uh, you know, I told you my wife grew up in, in a city nearby and, you know, she still says, I don't think I'll ever get used to 
when the cops drive by, they whoop the siren for the kids and they wave. Right. I've known all the cops in this town my whole life. And the funny thing is my family on both sides have are by all, you know, normal measurements outlaws. We, they lived a life that was not considered accepted by the mainstream and they love it. They love us in this town. They love us. Right. Because we are the reason that this town is what it is. My family bled to make this town what it is. Both sides of my bloodline came from another country and settled in this town. And we've never left. We used to own massive sprawls of land in this town. You know, I I can drive two minutes up the road and see where my great, great grandfather built the house that still stands that my great aunt lives in still who's 99. That was the house that he built when he came here. That man came over here without his family and took two years to clear out a lot and build a house and then sent back a letter for his wife and his kids to come over because he had created a life for them. That is proof of work. That's the kind of stuff that people can't conceive of today. People can't conceive of the, the shit that makes me laugh is the people that say, well, I don't know how you could live there. It takes half an hour to get to Walmart. <laughs> That's why I live here. <laughs> that is exactly why I live here. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> and it, it, it's so funny. We talk about proof of work. Guess what, guys? We're not going to survive unless we bring that type of proof of work back that your grandfather did, your grandfather's grandfather did, mine, what you're doing right now, what I'm accomplishing right now. We're not going to last if we don't bring this back. I can, I can guarantee you right now. And it doesn't start with somebody directing you. It starts in that accountability mirror, man. I mean, the time is now. They're about to switch the society on us a little bit. People don't understand. <laughs> it's coming. And if, you, if you're worried about, you know, your distance to Walmart, and that's the biggest thing, and if that is your proof of work, is that you had to drive 30 miles to Walmart, you're <laughs> fucked. <laughs> so just give up. Sell your Bitcoin, give up, get in the pod, get in the meta, and you're going to, you know, eat your, eat your, your fake steak and you, you'll be all right. <laughs> but if you're not ready to get some proof of work and, you know, the boots on the ground, like I, I always say, and the grease on your hands and the callus on your hands, like you've got going, um, you know, you're, you're, you're going to be screwed in ways that you don't see. And I think that, you know, the blue collar, type of living that we grew up with that we used to think that was just the biggest ball busting experience of our lives. We had no understanding of why is now becoming the new luxurious lifestyle because it is about perception. It is about why do I desire what I desire? And I think everybody needs to have that conversation with themselves and it doesn't matter what you're doing right now. What I, I, I see everybody that wants to have a, wife, a life well lived, uh, 
is is to follow this message that you and I have been talking about the last hour and a half to to basically look deep because right now we've got all the tools in Bitcoin space right now. We have all the help we need. Everybody out there is willing to be truthful and honest for the most part. You know, you can you can call the bullshit whenever you see it. It's easy. But you know the people that are based. You know the people that are out there doing proof of work. And, you know, I think we, we, we're on to something as a collective right now, and it's the right collective. It is something that is going to build a consensus. And, you know, I wanted to, you know, maybe in closing here, and I really didn't pay much attention to what went down in El Salvador, but I wanted to, because, you know, I, I saw some conversation today about the dangers of what they're doing with that announcement of the, whatever, the Bitcoin city citadel. And I see, I see problems with that. I see it very uh, ambitious. I see it very good intentionally, but I see it differently. And I'll let you kind of comment and then I'll kind of close out with what I, I, I believe. I mean, I think the best take that I saw on it uh, was Odell's take on it. And uh, it was really simple. It was just, you know, the, the age of Bitcoin Citadel is upon us. And uh, they're going to be very different spread across, um, you know, the world to come. And just because you may not think it's a good thing or may not agree with this Bitcoin city thing that's happening uh, doesn't mean shit. Right. It, nobody's forcing you to learn Spanish and move to El Salvador. And the fact of the matter is is my citadel and your citadel may not look anything alike, but they're going to be based on the same things. They're going to be based on a proof of work lifestyle. They're going to be based on a hard money. They're going to be based on a monetary system that doesn't allow your time to be stolen from you. And if we can get those simple things in common amongst the citadels, everything else is just, details right just because i i don't i don't believe in the idea that all bitcoiners need to be the same way i don't and that's kind of why i touched on the, the carnivore thing earlier and that phase that went through bitcoin twitter with all of that it's like i'm here for freedom money i'm here for freedom money but i, I don't understand the paradox of people being here for freedom money and then you want to tell me how i got to live every other part of my life like I'm here for freedom, everything I'm here for freedom money because I don't want anybody to be able to tell me what to do in any part of my life. So if I want to live this proof of work lifestyle that I live and being sovereign and raising my own food, good for me. But if you don't want to live that way, I hope you make it and good for you. But the basis is a Bitcoin standard within these citadels is going to make whatever else you want possible without that base layer of being a Bitcoin, whether, you know, hyper Bitcoinization, I hate that fucking term, but a base layer of a hard money being Bitcoin will make all of that other shit possible that you want without that. You're never going to get all that other shit. It's going to be debased out from underneath you and stolen from you. Right, you're gonna end up in a pod eating fucking bugs. Like, that's it. I mean, that's that's my take on it. 
Yeah, no, you know, that's that's kind of my take on it as well. Uh, there's a couple of things that pop into my head as far as the smart city approach, but what I see is very crucial right now is having that base layer, having that base layer of value. That's, that's the only way these things are going to work because, you know, there's so many type of, they're not Bitcoin citadels by any means, but there are these places that are being developed like in, you know, the Middle East right now. I think it was Qatar is one of them or Dubai and where you basically never leave. You never leave the, the premise. You never go outside. You know, it's form. It's more of a form of meta living than, you know, a Bitcoin city would be proposed to be lived like. And the, the one, thing, one thing that will make the Bitcoin city successful is that base layer of value. Um, and I think that is the most crucial thing and the one thing that we also have to look at is is the proximity of how it can be exploited to turn into a, a, a type of uh, smart city that people do not understand. But, you know, that's it's, it's looking into the future too far. But I think the number one thing about El Salvador is that they're willing to go out there and just say, screw it, we're going to throw some stuff on the wall, see what sticks. And and that's what you have to have with adoption. I've saw it in the technology space in the early days, and that's what we're going to go through and see right now. There's going to be a lot of people arguing about it, everything, but I love the idea. I love an idea because it is El Salvador. It is a path to a freedom that they've never seen. Even if it is somewhat captured, we don't know yet, but we will find out. And thank goodness somebody's trying it right now because it's good for all of us that it is being thrown out there. You know, they're taking some arrows, you know, because the first one's through the door to get all our arrows. And so we're going to we're going to see how this plays out. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I don't want to. I don't want to call it bad until it's bad. Yeah. So, no, uh, my, not at hope, all. my hope is that it plays out in the best possible way for them. Uh, I can tell you, I'm never leaving the snow to go to a volcano. <laughs> you don't like the heat, man. Nah, you, you don't like the heat. Yeah. Yeah. You don't like the heat. I know that much. So, um, I'll do, you, you can come visit and I, I come visit you and, uh, we'll just, we'll just, you know, We'll keep it at that. <laughs> I'm not going to move to. I'm not going to move to a volcano, but I'm going to stay in the desert high plains of uh, Northwest Texas, and that's where I will finally lay to lay to rest. Uh, made my decision, and I'll be acquiring more space up here, more physical space. The more they try to steal it from me, the more I'm going to acquire. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> And I'm going to plant all these cool grasses that the buffalo used to eat. And I'm going to put freaking cattle all over them. And uh, that's in the works. And, you know, I'm, I'm making some really good connections. Um, some really cool, exciting things are about to happen with the, the Texas Beef Initiative. And I, I want to spread it across every state. And I want every I want there to be, you know, the main 
Beef Initiative, the New Hampshire Beef Initiative, the Vermont Beef Initiative, the New York Beef Initiative. I want all of this to scale in every state that we have because it's going to take communities. It's going to take guys like you that has families like you and the viewpoints that you have, LC. And, you know, I think that uh, this is going to be an exciting year coming up. I can tell you that uh, you can look forward to seeing some things on the beef front from me. My uh, my grandfather that owned this house was an award-winning Black Angus raiser. So uh, we'll, awesome. be getting, we'll be getting back to the roots. Well, you and I are going to talk some more <laughs> offline. I, I want to hear more about that. And, uh, of course, we'll schedule. Let's do this again after the holidays and uh, kind of see how the holidays went, see how we close out the year and kind of project our plans and kind of forecast some destinations that you and I see coming, you know, coming to the forefront in 2022. Absolutely, Slim. I thank you so much for your time and having me on, brother. It's always a pleasure. Hey, Elsie. Um, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for having me on your podcast the first time. And now I've paid you in return. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again soon. Okay, bud? Absolutely, brother. You have a great night. All right. Take care, bud.